0: As has been mentioned already this morning, how thankful and blessed we are for our regular membership, that health and things are as well with us as they are, and also for our visitors who've come our way today. We hope that the experience of being with us is uplifting and encouraging to you, and we'd like to invite you back at each and every opportunity that you may have to be with us. Here at the Pippin Congregation, we strive simply to do Bible things in Bible ways and to be that congregation described exactly and identically within the blessed pages of the New Testament Scriptures. We have been studying now for some weeks various lessons related to those books that our youngsters are studying in regard to the Bible Bowl. Those books are in the New Testament, James through Jude. And we have already looked at lessons from the book of James, as well as the book of 1 Peter. And last Lord's Day morning, we even made consideration of the book of 2 Peter. This morning, we will complete that book as we look at yet another lesson from that beautiful and yet powerful book written from the hand of the Apostle Peter. If we might recollect just a few of the major lessons we learned last Lord's Day, we remember the central guiding theme of the book of 2 Peter is Christian growth the exhortation to mature in the faith, to grow in Christ. And we even learn powerfully that the key word in the book is the word knowledge. That is the central element in approaching Christian growth. It is the foundation which cannot be, in fact, removed if we expect to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We also made note so amazingly about the power of Second Peter 3, verse 18. It's that verse that was read in our hearing just a moment ago. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. We appreciated that that was a commandment. If we are to be pleasing, if I am to be pleasing, and if you are to be pleasing unto the eyes of our Heavenly Father, we must grow in faith. We must, in fact, day by day, month by month, become stronger in our appreciation for Christ, the character of his gospel, and to be more ready to stable stand in able defense of that noble character of the truth of God, Philippians 1.16. This morning, as we continue our journey through the book of 2 Peter, we will find that there are other things that can even better challenge us to appreciate and yet one more time learn the necessary aid to growing spiritually. It would be, a, it would be well at this point for us to note This growth in Christ requires effort. It does not come without any investment on our part. It does not come magically and miraculously in the blink of an eye. It requires diligence, effort, study. Isn't it true that we are well aware of that fact in the physical kingdom? When you and I plant a garden in the spring without any labor invested on our part, will we expect much, if any, harvest? We already know the answer to that. We realize the soil must be prepared and thus effort is required. The actual planting must take place and thus work is demanded. We know that there's weeding and tilling and plowing that must be done throughout the growing season. And furthermore, we even appreciate the necessity of fertilizing the other things perhaps to keep out animals. Maybe enough has been said. We understand the necessity of investment of labor for things to grow and a harvest to be obtained physically. It is no different spiritually. As we grow, we learn last Lord's Day about the ingredients that are involved. In Second Peter 1, verses 5 through 7, faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love, all are to be involved in our growth spiritually as we mature in Christ added to our life if we would expect to be those pleasing unto God. That very thought encourages us to notice the motivation is eternal judgment. We shall one day, all of us, stand before God and give an account for the things done in the body. Second Peter 3 verse 11 says it this way, Seeing that all these things should be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? With those motivating factors set before us, you and I may easily think we could conclude that this growth should happen amazingly, powerfully, and at once, but there is opposition to spiritual growth. There are things that oppose it. There are factors that stand in the way that impede its progress. You and I could list many of them. I have listed a few. Apathy is one. Lack of commitment, indifference, laziness, if we are simply not willing to do that which God has commanded, whether it be in any regard related to his word, the study of it, the application into our life, then we will not grow spiritually the way we should. But in the book of Second Peter, there is one key factor that Peter focuses on at length. It'll be the subject of our lesson this morning. What is this factor that opposes spiritual growth that consumes the entirety of a whole chapter in the book of Second Peter? It is false teaching. False teaching is a dramatic opposing force to the reality of growing spiritually. Let us look deeply into the second chapter of 2 Peter this morning. I'd invite your attention with me as we look at verse after verse in which Peter explains the power, the character of false teaching. With that said, let's thus look interestingly beginning in verse 16 of chapter 1. As Peter lays the foundation here, how does he begin? We've already learned the necessity of knowledge. It is a vital component, foundational element in any spiritual growth. Wasn't it Paul who said to the Romans, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. That word of God is that sure word of prophecy that Peter referred to in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. It is sure, certain, absolutely unassailable. It is not such that we can expect mistakes and errors and other human things to be found in it. It is absolutely sure. Peter even said, we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. He said, I saw the risen Lord. And wasn't it Peter who on that mount of transfiguration was privileged to be present when he and James and John saw the transfigured Jesus a preparatory fact to his own resurrection and crucifixion, not many days later. As Peter thus made those statements, he closed chapter 1 on one of the highest notes to be found in this book. He said, No prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That prophecy then that is sure, was revealed by the power of the Holy Spirit as that Spirit superintended and guided, inspired men to write it. We thus have in our possession the Word of God. It is not the Word of man. It is not the thought of man. It is the Word of God expressing the thought of God. As that thought closes chapter 1, what a high note and what an exciting one at that. But have you ever noticed the very word that starts chapter 2, the very first word of 2 Peter 2 verse 1? It's the word but. He is illustrating a contrast. Even though that there were holy men who revealed the word of God in its purity, its power, and all of its strength, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privately shall bring in damnable heresies even denying the lord that bought them and shall bring upon themselves swift destruction and many shall follow their pernicious ways by way of whom by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of we can notice a dramatic change in the thing discussed by the apostle having affirmed the purity of the word of god and its capability by virtue of knowledge to lead one to everlasting life he said but there were false prophets among the people. Immediately as we contemplate the nature of false prophets, we can notice how that stands in such gigantic contrast to the purity of God's Word. This is a dramatic gift from God, and every perfect and every good gift comes down from Him, James 1.17. How often in the Old Testament is this painted in such a dramatic picture of purity and holiness and goodness? In Psalm 119 verse 89, for example, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Though men may have their thoughts and dispositions etched within the recesses of their mind, it is not so with this book. It is settled in heaven. And thus in verse 97, O how love I thy law? It is my meditation all the day. Verse 128 of that same chapter, Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. The entrance of thy word giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. Verse 130 of the 119th Psalm. Maybe those verses alone have challenged us to appreciate that when Peter referred to the sure word of prophecy, he knew what he was speaking of, for the Holy Spirit had led him to write it. Later in that same chapter, verse 162, the grandeur and beauty of the fact that even the greatness of God's word is seen as we exemplify it in our lives before others. With all that said, what then are we to take by Peter's statement? There were false prophets among the people. It is a sad and yet true tragedy that there are those who would distort the word of God. There are those who pervert it. There are those who misinterpret it, and may we in fact note Second Peter 3.16, the very book in which we're studying. Peter even said there are those who rest the scriptures. That word W-R-E-S-T in the New King James is the word twist. They twist it. The Greek word means to pervert, to distort, to misinterpret. There are those who do not use this book to teach the truth that God intended it to teach. They take it out of its context. They use its teachings otherwise than what was intended and use it to teach things of which God does not approve. False teachers. May we reflect for a moment on the false prophets of the Old Testament for a dramatic lesson may be gleaned from them. May we begin by noting these false prophets of which Peter spoke were not those prophets of Baal and Ashtaroth and Molech and other false deities of the Old Testament. These were supposedly prophets of God, and yet they were false. They did not proclaim the truth of God's revelation in that day. They spoke otherwise, and the Old Testament is filled with such examples. In Jeremiah 5, verse 31 the very last verse of that chapter in the book of Jeremiah, we have the dramatic note of false prophets even in Jeremiah's day. The prophets prophesy falsely, the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so, Jeremiah said. Isn't it interesting that here were those who claimed to be the prophets of God, but yet they weren't. Notice in chapter 28 of that book, maybe the most dramatic example. Here, a man was called by name. Now, Jeremiah was the true prophet of God, and this man was named Hananiah. He, in fact, opposed what Jeremiah revealed. Hananiah was such that he said, My people will not go into captivity, though Jeremiah says they will. They, in fact, will at most, perhaps for a year or two, be back here in our land blessed again by God. Jeremiah straightforwardly stood in the face of Hananiah and said, You are a liar. God hath not spoken by you. The people had a choice to make. And in fact, to emphasize the power of what he said, Jeremiah said, If God has spoken by me, then you will be dead, Hananiah, within seven months. Seven months from that day, Hananiah was buried. He was dead. Jeremiah was the true prophet of God. Here was a man named Hananiah who had the audacity to stand before God's people and though he was not a true prophet, he made statements that were false and God judged him appropriately. Oh, the error and the evil of false prophets. In Micah chapter 3, another reference is given to these who lived in that day who ought to have been the true prophets of God but were not. Perhaps the point of all of this is then to lead us to say that When one teaches, in the matter of religion, it is a serious responsibility, isn't it? In James chapter 3, verse 1, another one of those verses that our youngsters have been studying, we learn there in the King James where it says, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater judgment. The New King James reads it, Be not many teachers, knowing that we shall receive stricter judgment. You see, when you and I teach others the way of salvation, speaking on behalf of God, we need to know the book so that we can teach it correctly and properly and without error. For when we teach amiss and they believe what we say, they may find themselves eternally lost because we taught them wrongly, because they were led down the pathway of error. And hence Peter issues a dire warning. There were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. Oh, how serious a matter it is, but we must understand the fact that there will be false teachers. There will be those who will pervert to twist and distort and misinterpret the Holy Word of God, and they'll use it to their own end. He doesn't say they won't be sincere. He doesn't say they won't be earnest, for in fact, many of them are, but that doesn't change the fact that they will teach things that are called damnable heresies, things that are in fact destructive in their nature. Let us look further at verses 1 through 3 of 2 Peter chapter 2. Having learned the power of what these matters are, would you consider these additional thoughts with me? Consider the ways and the truths that are revealed about these false teachers. As we've already noted, they will exist. We should not be so naive as to think that there will not be those who will teach falsely, for there will be. It's no wonder then that John issued the clarion call in 1 John 4, 1, "...believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God." Just because a person is an eloquent, smooth speaker, we mustn't simply believe what he says. We must check what he says versus this book to ascertain whether or not what he has proclaimed is true. That's the litmus test of truth, isn't it? His eloquence, his suaveness, the character of his debonairness is irrelevant with regard to the truth. Is what he says in harmony with God's revelation. We notice Peter warns, there will be false teachers among you, but what's more, they will bring in damnable heresies. Destructive teachings is the way the New King James reads it. Destructive teachings, these aren't wholesome, positive, godly teachings. They're destructive. That is to say, they bring evil and badness and harm. Now, perhaps not in the here and now. For indeed, when we build a life upon that which is false, it may have great ramifications for now, but certainly it will on the day of judgment. Certainly it will when that individual comes to realize that his life had been based on a lie, had not been based on the truth of God's revelation. If you and I ask then, what about this? Is it serious? Who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves what? Swift destruction. Destruction. How often do our writers of the New Testament remind us of the fact there is a destruction that awaits those opposed to God. God's will will be accomplished. And when we in this life refuse to submit and bow before it, we will ultimately pay an eternity for that gigantic and regretful mistake. Peter warns them, if you are to grow spiritually, you cannot give credence to false teaching. For true knowledge is not based on false teaching. No wonder, even in our day, 20 centuries later, we are still awash in false teaching. Those who will take Scripture and misinterpret and pervert it to their own advantage and end, and those who have desire to, in fact, forget willfully some of the things that God has revealed, As we look further, what else do we notice? In verses 2 and 3, And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Isn't it significant that in verse 2 he says, These false teachers will blaspheme the way of truth. There is but one way to heaven, right? Jesus said in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And in Acts 4:12, Peter, the very one that wrote this, said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And yet this way of truth will be evil spoken of. It will be blasphemed. To blaspheme means to revile, to speak against, to speak evil of, and hence there are those who will even speak evil against the very character and core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a serious issue. False teaching is such that it retards spiritual growth. It prohibits it. It inhibits it. It opposes it. And no wonder Peter warned so drastically against it. But he's only getting started. That's only three verses. The chapter has a total of 22 verses, and all of them warn us about false teaching. Could we conclude from this that the God of heaven is concerned about false teaching? That he wants his children to recognize, identify, know, and avoid it? That's exactly what it means. And hence, we need to be schooled in the sacred nature of the word of God, prepared and ready to identify those false teachers and to not follow them, to not give in to them, to not endorse them, to not support them in any way, hopefully to encourage them and teach them the way of truth. The first three verses have aided us to know that some will even deny the Lord Jesus. 1 John 2.22 will make note of that fact, and we will study that in some more detail beginning next Lord's Day morning. But note the examples. In verses 4 through 6, Peter lists examples of those who in fact were involved in falseness. Maybe you and I can remember these examples as good ways to help us day by day in our walk of truthfulness to not make the same mistake they did. What were the examples? Verse 4, angels. There were angels, privileged to be in the very presence of the God of heaven, who, in fact, forsook their own habitation, as Jude will describe it. They forsook the station that they had and chose to disobey the very God of heaven. What did God do to them? Did he ignore their falseness? Did he wink at it and pretend it didn't exist? No. Verse 4, God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Falseness was not ignored by God. They were punished. Second example, verse 5, the flood of Noah's day. On the earth at the time, there were eight righteous souls. The vast majority were opposed to God, living in falseness and, in fact, encouraging falseness. Did God ignore it? Did he turn a blind eye to it? He did not. He said, Noah, you construct an ark to the saving of your house, and lo and behold, the heavens were opened and the great deep was broken up, and a flood of waters came. Those that were evil were punished. Example number three. Verse number 6, Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis chapter 19. On this occasion, when Lot was dwelling in that place, the vast majority were lost. They were opposed to God living in iniquity, and in Genesis 19, its destruction is recorded. God rained fire and brimstone on Sodom, and ultimately only three escaped, Lot and his two daughters. One more time, did God ignore their iniquity? Did he ignore their false living and their false life? He did not. He destroyed it. Peter's example. Do you think then that today God will ignore iniquity? Will he condone false teaching and uphold those who are willing to live it and follow it? The answer is no. And thus his examples are so challenging still to us today. Notice how the chapter marches so quickly forward as Peter describes false teaching and sometimes the matters used to promote and to advance it. That brings us to recognize perhaps the following. Consider these ideas with me if you would. Characteristics of false teachers. Many things about them are listed. Beginning in verse 3, many of them are prompted by covetousness. Money, greed, filthy lucre as the Bible will describe it. They teach what they teach not because they know the Bible teaches it, but because the love of money is there. And isn't it true that the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveteth after they've erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many deadly sorrows? 1 Timothy 6 verse 10. But not only that, in so doing they make merchandise of you. You're just a pawn in their ability to make funds and monies and to gain prestige, popularity, and power. That's the motivation of some. But notice what else is described about them. It's also to be observed in verse number 10. What are some of the things that they're willing to teach? But chiefly, them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-will, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. To amplify that point, look with me in fact two verses later. But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not. They talk and preach about things that not only do they not know, they don't understand. They twist and pervert and distort the truth of God, and hence in that distortion they understand it not and are willing to speak about that which they do not know. And in so doing, those duped souls that follow them are walking down the same pathway of destruction. It is a magnanimous tragedy, isn't it? But let us look further. What else can be said about the circumstances of these? Notice with me in verse number 12 and also verse 19. What do they promise? Specifically verse 19, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. These who can preach about the character of, for instance, forgiveness or remission or other beautiful justifying matters before God, they themselves have never been cleansed. They themselves have never been forgiven. And hence, because of their refusal to to submit to the Word of God, they teach others of the same and they bring others into the same captivity in which they are. It's a vicious circle, isn't it? All the while, while they promise them liberty, they themselves... the servants of corruption. To go one step further, perhaps, it is to be noted that they have forsaken the way that's right. Notice verses 15 and 16, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And immediately to our mind comes that Old Testament example here mentioned by Peter when the donkey talked and in fact rebuked Balaam. The donkey on that occasion, wiser than he was. Balaam was opposed to the nature of God and here he himself was cataloged as a false teacher on that occasion having loved the wages of unrighteousness. Wouldn't it be a tragic matter to stand on judgment before God and have him say you have loved the wages not of righteousness but of unrighteousness? These false teachers are in that very category. How sad. But yet the sadness of it is that in verse 2, many shall follow them. Many shall follow them. They do not, in fact, check what they teach versus the word of God. They accept it, perhaps pursue it, and believe it. Many shall follow them. Notice in verses 11 and following, who it is that especially is beguiled by these. Verse 14, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. Perhaps we can see in that an invitation by Peter, we need to be stable souls. Stably founded on the wonderful word of God, so that false teaching cannot, in fact, dissuade us and persuade us and beguile us. Unstable souls are gullible. They haven't studied and matured to the point where they are prepared to fight against or oppose the nature of false teachers. As you and I turn on the TV and perhaps are aware by television or articles and magazines... Thousands sit at the feet of those who conveniently don't teach the whole truth of the gospel. They may teach part of it. But Paul said that I've left out nothing that was profitable to you, Acts chapter 20. We notice that we can't leave out any of it. We must preach the whole counsel of God in all of its majesty and in all of its truth. For we understand that unstable souls may be beguiled by any false teaching, even though it's well intended, and they may ultimately stand for an eternity in regretful disobedience to the God who made them. Oh, how serious and how lovely it is to teach the truth of God that could save men's souls. Romans 1.16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The nature of what has been studied so far in chapter 2 brings us to a point near to the conclusion of that chapter, which is the dramatic warning that Peter gives to you and me today. No doubt in the lesson that has been somewhat obvious already. Given the nature of false teaching and how destructive it is, the warning to you and me must be to avoid it and to steadfastly be faithful unto the truth of God. But notice the certainty with which Peter states that very point. Would you read with me beginning in verse 20 of Second Peter chapter 2. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein, and overcome the latter end with them is worse than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Notice that Peter said, to those who've known the way of truth, that is, they have become Christians, followers of the way of God, because they've escaped the pollutions of the world. He said, it is possible for them to be again overcome with those same evil, wicked, disastrous, and untruthful teachings. When that happens, what's the state of affairs? Verse 20, the latter end is worse than the beginning. Why is that? In the meantime, they came to know the Savior. They came to know the blood of Christ and the remission that it offers. They came to appreciate the blessing from heaven. Hebrews 6, verses 6 and 7 but then they turned their back on it, went back into the same world of iniquity and sin. The latter end for them is worse than the beginning. Verses twenty one and twenty two, it'd been better for them not to have known the way of truth than to forsake it and go back into the world of sin. You see, false teaching can make that happen. It can be an element in producing it. That person who came in sincerity and honesty to obey the truth, but then, due to sitting at the feet of a false teacher and believing him, goes back into the way of iniquity, sin, and ungodliness. Peter said that person is now worse off than he was when he was an alien sinner. For at least then he'd never known the way of truth, but now he's known it and been led aside from it. Oh, what an encouragement that is to you and me to understand that this book is the guide. It is not me, and it's not me. Any preacher will certainly always say, be sure to check all that I say in regard to this book. For in my attempt to preach the truth, it's not to say that I'm perfect. It's not to say that I can't make mistakes. I try diligently to preach that which the Bible reveals. But all of us must diligently search the scriptures as those at Berea did in Acts 17. For these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. And hence, what an encouragement for us to faithfulness and to the opposition that's associated with false teaching. It's somewhat interesting to notice the word entangle as it appears in verse 20 entangled therein, that means to enweave, to become involved with, to participate with. As we see the character of that verse and the terrible state of that dog turning again to its vomit or to that sow that's been washed to right back to the mud hole, may we notice that in Christ's blood we are washed clean and pure white as described in Revelation 7.14. But we can, by following false teaching, go back to a world of corruption, back to a world of iniquity, back to a world of which we're overcome by that thing that makes us worse than we were at the beginning. May we, as the Church of Christ at Pippin, may we as individuals then strive to maintain faithfulness and true allegiance to the truth revealed by God of heaven in the New Testament. For indeed, we realize that the promise for those who do that is an eternal reward in a place where there is no defilement, where there is no falseness in any way, Revelation 21:27, and where there is nothing that will separate us from the Savior whom we love and who gave His life for us. This morning, then, are you a Christian? In summary to the lesson, that would certainly be a critical element. For becoming a Christian is a necessary matter if we are to be pleasing before God and expect to receive the eternal sentence of glorious bliss with Him in heaven. This very day, though there may be false teachers who distort and pervert the gospel plan of salvation, it is simple in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, every single example of conversion includes various items, and as we study them, we learn this. We must believe Jesus to be the Son of God, he himself said, Except ye believe I am He you shall die in your sins, John eight twenty four. And Peter, or rather Paul even noted in Romans ten verses fourteen and fifteen how necessary it is to believe. But belief alone will not save. For even the devils believe, James two nineteen, but of course they aren't saved. We must also repent. That is to say, a change of mind that produces a change in action, a change in lifestyle, in which by virtue of that repentance we shun the way of sin and strive day by day to live in wholesome goodness to the truth revealed in the Bible. Notice too, we must confess. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, the necessity that if we fail to confess Him, then He will fail to confess us before God. Finally, we did to be baptized. Immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins, Acts 2.38, Acts 3.19, Acts 18.8, Acts 22.16, 1 Peter 3.21, Romans 6, 3 and 4, Colossians 2, 12 and 13. The New Testament so often informs us of the necessity of that burial where the old man of sin is put to death and buried. And a new man rises to walk in newness of life, Colossians 3 verse 24. Today, if we could assist you in doing that, what a great day it would be for you. But if you have become a Christian in earlier times but haven't been faithful to the Lord, perhaps false teaching has gotten away into your life, come back to the Savior, come back to the truth. If we could assist you in either of those ways today, we'd be happy to do it. Brother the Harold has chosen a hymn of encouragement. If you need to come publicly, will you not do that even now while together we stand and while we sing?